Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? Within the last couple of weeks, refugees have been on my mind. This was triggered by the refugee camp on the Greek island of Lesbos, as well as the campaign of the 1300 chairs in front of the Bundestags to represent the people in the camp. And I guess I've sort of just been thinking about not necessarily what it means to be a refugee, but we've had a refugee crisis within the last couple of years. It's just a word and a concept and just it's just talked about a lot, thrown about a lot. And I realized that I don't actually know that much about all these conventions. And so I just I wanted to take some time to just fully understand what are the conventions, what are the protocols, so I can fully understand what this crisis is about. Yeah, that's really great because refugees, immigrants, all of these topics are in the news all the time. So we're getting these short reports on things that are developing. But for me also, it was very hard to be like, wait, where is this problem coming from? Who are these people? What are the routes they are using? What are the numbers concretely? Everyone says we're in the middle of a crisis all the time. Is that true? So, yeah, it's really nice to have some time to do a bit of a deeper dive into this. Right. And I think especially in the time of social media where it's you can spread misinformation so quickly. A really great example of this is a couple of weeks ago, people were freaking out on social media because they said that Google Maps had erased Palestine from the map. And then someone pointed out Palestine has never been on the map. But it caught on like wildfire and I saw all of these well-meaning people reposting this on their stories on Instagram. And so it's like, it just really drove home. Nobody is talking about facts or numbers or just thinking things through in a logical, rational way, which I completely get because, you know, when it comes to the welfare of people and suffering of humans, yes, of course we lead with emotions as we rightfully should, because if we're not looking out for one another, then like, what is the point? Surely the point of, you know, creating societies and humanity in general is just to take care of one another. Yeah, I feel like with the Maria thing in, so in Germany, in the, in front of our parliament or the Bundestag, there were 13,000 chairs, and then everyone was posting pictures of chairs. And then like, this is done. And we're all so sorry for all the people who are just trapped 20,000 people in this camp Maria which was basically built for 2,800 and in parts of the camp you know according to statistics there were 200 people to a four set uh, 160 people to a toilet the toilets were filthy there was rubbish everywhere the electricity obviously was failing because the camp was not built for this it was cold people were sleeping on the floors there's a really good article by a doctor who worked in this camp for three weeks in The Guardian, and we will link to it in our newsletter. And even then, there was one case just in her diaries where she says a family came running in and they were shouting fire, fire, because there had been like this carbon monoxide poisoning that was happening because somebody had lit a fire to keep themselves warm, and then there was a fire in that case. So it was just a disaster waiting to happen. And now these people are just sleeping on the streets. They have nothing. They have nowhere to go. They come from war zones. Nobody is helping these people and nobody cares. Our reaction is obviously that we're outraged and we should take all of these refugees. But like you said, let's look at it a little bit more in depth before the news cycle moves on and then we're really upset about the next upsetting thing. Yeah. 
Germany has taken 465 refugees from this specific camp, which, given, is not a lot of people, so that's still 13,000 people. That's a pathetic amount. But yeah, so basically, I started looking into what are the treaties, what are the protocols that we have put into place to sort of deal with refugees, and even the bigger question of how do we define a refugee? Who is a refugee, who is not? So... There are two key things when it comes to the UN and refugees. One, there was the 1951 Refugee Convention, and then the 1967 Protocol. So the 1951 Convention laid down a bunch of important rules pertaining to the rights of refugees and also which responsibilities the states who sign it have. For example, Article 3 states that the contracting states shall not discriminate against refugees. Article 4 states that the refugees have the freedom to practice their religion. Article 22 states that they have access to elementary education. Article 23 that they have access to public relief and assistance. Article 17 states that they have wage-earning employment. Article 21 that they have access to housing. The 1967 Protocol just sort of addressed that in the original convention, it was written that this document pertains to events occurring in Europe or events occurring in Europe or elsewhere. And so the 1967 Protocol removed both the temporary and geographic restriction of Europe and the protocol gave those states which had previously ratified the 1951 convention and had chosen to use the definition of restricted to Europe the option to retain that restriction. 149 states have signed either both or one of these treaties and protocols. One of the things that I thought was really, really important to sort of note about this is that these conventions and the protocol was signed in Geneva, but it's different than the Geneva Convention, which is the protocol that establishes the standard of international law for humanitarian treatment in war, which seems like one of the most insane things in the world to me. Not the fact that we decided that we should treat each other fairly, but the fact that war isn't seen as breaking the Geneva Convention I understand that the point of it is to be like, oh, tear gas is illegal. So in the United States, when the police was using tear gas against citizens of their own country, that was technically breaking the Geneva Convention. So there's, you know, how the Geneva Convention basically lays down how you can treat prisoners of war, which chemicals and which weapons are allowed in use. This is actually a really good point because... If you look at where the refugees are coming from in Europe, obviously they're coming from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Sudan. Those are all war zones. Mm-hmm. So surely <laughs> if we stopped going to war, then we wouldn't have this problem of how to humanely treat these people. It makes no sense. But anyway, yeah. I mean, I, th- I guess it's kind of like harm reduction in a way. You know, this thought process of harm reduction is people are going to engage in harmful behavior. So we might as well put in place rules and regulations to do it safely, which we have a lot of examples of harm reduction in our society. Wearing a seatbelt, that's a form of harm reduction. Wearing a helmet. The Geneva Convention is a completely different thing that has nothing to do with the treaty and the protocols put in place for refugees. So I guess a really good place to start is how do we define what a refugee is? And specifically, where did the modern definition of a refugee come from? So the first modern definition of international refugee status comes from the League of Nations in 1921. If you don't know what the League of Nations is, it's basically the precursor to the UN. 
It was formed after World War One by Woodrow Wilson, who was the American president at the time. And it was disbanded, but it laid the groundwork for what we now know as the UN. So in 1921, the League of Nations formed the Commissions for Refugees. And following World War II, and in response to the large number of people fleeing Eastern Europe, the UN put in place the 1951 Refugee Convention. And here, refugee is defined in Article 1.A.2 as any person who, owing to well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, member of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside the country of his nationality and is unable, or owing to such fear, is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country, or who, not having a nationality and being outside the country of his former habitual residence as a result of such events, is unable, or, owing to such fear, unwilling to return to it. So this is, in 1951, what they defined as a refugee. In 2011, the UNHCR, which is the specific government branch within the UN that deals with refugees, sort of added in addition to the 1951 definition and recognized persons as refugees who are outside their country of nationality or habitual residence and unable to return there owing to serious and indiscriminate threats to life, physical integrity, or freedom resulting from generalized violence or events seriously disturbing public order. Does that include, then, people who are literally starving and don't have enough money? That's the question, isn't it? Are economic migrants, are, I don't know what they're called, like malnutrition, does that figure into it? I think that there's a lot of debate about that. And specifically when it comes to the Article 3 of the 1933 convention relating to the international status of refugee mentions this thing called non-refoulement and it's french non-refoulement and it basically means that if you are you know if your life is threatened you cannot be returned to your country where you came from but how do you define your life being threatened mm. if you're going to starve to death that is a threat to your life we also have a new problem coming now because we have climate refugees something that none of these treaties foresaw and that the UN on their website have said that the treaties in place don't account for such thing as climate refugees and that in addition to prosecution and conflict in the 21st century, natural disasters can also force people to seek refuge in other countries. Such disasters are increasing in frequency and intensity. While most of the displaced caused by these events is eternal, they can also cause people to cross borders. None of the existing international and regional refugee instruments, however, specifically address the plight of such people. This is from, you know, the UN website. I think one thing that's really, really obviously clear is that if you leave your country, the place you were born in, the place where you know the people and the language and everything, and decide to walk or travel or pay people to take you through multiple countries and put yourself and your few belongings and your papers or your children and your family and everyone onto a boat to cross a sea to go to a place where you have no idea what awaits you and where nobody wants you, frankly, because it has been argued that Maria is kept so badly or people have been kept in this Greek camp for ages and ages just to deter more people from coming and that Europe is actively deterring people from coming. So 
people who are working for all these NGOs who are saving people from drowning in the Mediterranean, now the Italians have made it a crime. So those people can face massive fines for saving human lives. So if you decide to do that, to come somewhere else, it's really clear that your life must be threatened. Absolutely. There was that quote where back in, was it 2017, where we were having the refugee crisis where someone said, nobody puts their children in water unless the water is safer than the land. And 40% of, of refugees are children, which worldwide means that 26 million people under the age of 18 are refugees in our world. There are 79.5 million people who have been forced to flee their homes, according to the UN. 68% of the world's refugees come from five countries. They come from Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar with the highest number being 6.6 .6 million Syrians currently fleeing their home. What's interesting, I don't know about Myanmar, but I know the rest of the four have had intervention, like I said, from the West and wars from the West. And, and then, yeah, these people have been displaced by our actions. Also with climate change, if you think about it, the West is mostly responsible for that because of our lifestyles. And so we're responsible for this problem. Statistically... There was a really, really interesting article, though, in the New York Times. It's from 2018. It's called Migrants are on the rise around the world and myths about them are shaping attitudes. So it points out that a lot of right-wing sentiment and parties are fueling a lot of fear about this so-called crisis in migration. So Trump, then you got Orban in Hungary, got Italy's political establishment becoming more and more populist. You've got Britain with their decision to leave the EU. A lot of this was fueled by anti-immigrant sentiment. They do use the word immigrants here, so we're just taking the whole, I mean, not just the refugees that are fleeing from wars, but I guess the whole group. Quick interjection. I think that language is incredibly important here. I remember when the refugee crisis happened, a lot of people would refer to them as migrants, not refugees. And it's just the way we talk about it, the way we perceive things, because referring to someone as a migrant diminishes the threat to their life. We just, I know that this article yes. is very specific and I'm not trying to like, but just in general, the way that the press and the media talks about these things, and even like politicians, very smart, obviously, and strategic with their language. Because, you know... So they're not fleeing, they're just deciding, they have the power to decide whether they're migrant or not. And what's also interesting, as another kind of tangent, there's another discussion to be had about expats, who are also technically migrants, because they migrate from one place to the other. But nobody's talking about all the Aussies in Berlin, are they? But that's, <laughs> not, that's another thing. A study based on surveys in the United States and a variety of European countries by the economists Alberto Alessina... Armando Miano and Stephanie Stantkeva found that people across the board vastly overestimate their immigrant populations. So just as an example, in the United States, the actual share of population that are immigrants is below 15%, but people think it's at about 30%. Or in Italy, for example, the actual share of the population who are immigrants is 10%, but people think that it's about... 27%. What was really interesting, though, was that 
People overestimate also that in their perception, the share of immigrants who are Muslims underestimate the share of Christians. And that's because of this whole anti-Islamization narrative that's been being spewed for quite maybe two decades now. They also underestimate immigrants' education and overestimate both their poverty rate and their dependence on welfare. So almost a quarter of French respondents, as well as nearly one in five Swedes and about one in seven Americans, think that the average immigrant gets twice as much government aid as native residents do. And in no country is this true. And also one of my misconceptions or one of the the questions is like, Everyone thinks that the whole of, you know, Africa is moving to Europe. But that's also a myth because most migrants from poor countries never actually make it to the United States or to Western Europe. Instead, they move to other countries that are nearby. So a little over half of immigrants from Africa settle in other African countries, while 60% of Asian migrants relocate elsewhere in Asia. So it's not like everyone's flooding into Europe. I just think it's important to note that actually there's only 1% of refugees in the world. And in a population 7.8 billion, like it's 79 million people are refugees. But in the population of the world, it's only 1%. And granted, that's 1% too many. But this crisis, the word is crisis always. And if we think about 79 million, you just said, Mm -hmm. that's less than the population of the whole of Germany. Yeah, which is 83 million about. So it's not, I mean, it's a lot of people and those horrifying that they have to face this, but it's not a crisis. <laughs> yeah, just the we the language we use makes it feel like it's a bigger problem. No, wait, that's wrong. It is a big problem. But the language that we use, that the media uses, makes it seem like we're about to be overrun. And I feel... It's fear-mongering, isn't it? It's fear-mongering. And I feel really bad for countries like Turkey and Greece and Italy because we've left them. You know, as you were saying, like, Germany pays Turkey a lot of money to keep refugees out, to halt them at the border, which is one of the reasons why the strain on relationships between Erdogan and Germany was really complicated because we rely on them. And please don't mistake that I think it's good that we're doing this. But this sort of leads me to another thing that I have qualms with when it comes to how we talk about this refugee crisis. Because I think specifically people in my demographic, young liberal people who live in Berlin, I saw a lot of people posting on Instagram or voicing their support for refugees. We should help refugees. I think it's been established that we are pro-refugee. But I get very frustrated with the way that my demographic talk about it because it's they're just, yes, we should help refugees, but they don't think about, I'm going to be very careful about how I choose my words here. Germany as a country functions really well because we have a lot of bureaucracy, we have a lot of protocol, and there's order to the way we do things. Now, we should help refugees, 100%, but it's very easy to sit in your Berlin apartment, even during a pandemic, when most of the people in my demographic were lucky enough to be on Kurzarbeit or Kurzarbeit Null and just have some sort of a security from the government, you know, that meant that they weren't going to be evicted, they could pay their rent, they could buy food. A lot of them are traveling now. You need to think about how do these things come into place? Just calling for us to open borders is not really the right way to go about things. What really needs to happen is we need to support Greece, we need to support Turkey, we need to support Italy in putting better protocols into place. 
John Oliver on his show last week tonight, he shows a couple of the pieces of paper that the refugees are handed when they land in Greece or I think in Turkey with their date on which their application or they would be processed. And I think there were some people like one woman came in 2015 and her date was in 2020. So there's not the structure in place to deal with this influx of people. That's why we have 24,000 people on an island that's only meant to house 5,000 people or whatever it is. So the solution isn't let's open all borders. The solution is we need to build a really efficient and good infrastructure so that we can take care of these people, we can process their applications, and that they can, you know, don't have to live in these shitty camps for so long. And I get really frustrated when young white liberals, it's half-assed. Their activism is half-assed. I don't think that's where the fault lies. With the white young liberal activists or with the immigration camp? with the young white liberals, because I think... It's good that they're expressing that we should open the borders because it gives a sign to politicians. Because if you look at the Maria, Maria was built for 2,000 people and it was built with an agreement from the EU mm-hmm. that they would then, it was a new camp, they would process everyone within two months and then they would be out and they would be redistributed you know, throughout Europe. What's happened is just that everyone, nobody wants, this government also does not want the refugees because it's an unpopular policy and they also are not, they don't care. And so if they see that the populace cares, maybe they will care more to bring them in faster. But there are people who have been in this camp for five years, like you say, and they were not processed. And also, so the European Union gives, I think they gave something like 2.4 billion or something to to Greece. Greece and Italy are on, obviously, because of where they're placed on the front lines when it comes to this. So the European Union gives a lot of money to Greece in order to build these camps and deal with this. But where has that money gone? It's, It's just, it's a bureaucratic problem on the Greek side, but also the European Union is not following up because these people are not important. And they're not important because everyone's kind of against them anyway. So if people are posting that they are pro-refugee, I think it makes the politicians sit up and take notice and maybe care about the issue a little bit more. Because what else are we supposed to do? Actually, it's fully within our capability. Like you said, Germany does have a very good bureaucratic system. They are holding these people back as much as possible on purpose. And when you see, for example, in Italy, there have been stories in The Guardian we can also link to Uh, in the show notes that these refugees because of the european laws that dictate that they have to be processed in the place where they land so for example italy the italians sometimes they're just taking these people in vans and dumping them like in bosnia and stuff it's totally illegal and everyone's turning a blind eye on it because these people don't matter all they have is their papers with them nobody knows where they are or if they drowned in the sea and you can do that with these people And I think we have to care more to make our politicians care more and to make everyone sit up and maybe putting 13,000 chairs outside the German Bundestag is a clear sign to all the people who have the agency to make this happen. Yeah. You know, to, to do it. I think they can do it. Please don't misunderstand me when I'm talking about these people. I don't mean the people who go off and set up 13,000 chairs or people like Pia Klemp who are out on the ocean actively trying to save people. I specifically am talking about people who will post an Instagram story to their like-minded liberal friends because that's what I saw a lot of. 
not people going out and taking tangible action. Those are not the people I'm talking about or the people who are posting or signing petitions. There's, I just feel like there's a lot of virtue signaling going around. And as soon as the news cycle moves on, it'll be forgotten. Yeah, of course, there is that. I do think, though, that every time you post on social media, you're choosing what to post and mm-hmm. what to give the internet airtime to. And if we show, you know, with the leave no one behind signs everywhere, if we just show that we are thinking of them, it becomes an issue and it's just airtime. Like, it can do no harm. I understand that it's not very, maybe it's not the most useful thing to do, which will bring us really nicely, actually, onto our three things. Do you think I'm too cynical with people in my demographic? I can understand the frustration because you never know who's going to see something and who's going to, whose mind might be a little bit changed or who might be activated by it, you know? Mm. So I'm on the hopeful side. Cautiously but, hopeful. But, you know, I, I see exactly what you're saying as well. So, but I don't think that's where the problem mainly lies. I think the problem is just. Oh, no. no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's where the problem mainly lies. I just feel like it's, it's what I see a lot. And so I get annoyed, but. Speaking of which... Yes, our three things that you can do in a concrete way. And not make me angry when I see you post on social media. <laughs> she's she's uh, ragey a lot of the time anyway. <laughs> yeah, I have the habit of, of... I get angry very quickly and I've sort of learned that I need to take a step back, breathe, and then think. Because if I act on impulse, I will be like, I hate everyone! Sorry, no, that's I think not it's really nice uh, for you also to be ragey and we should be more ragey and women should express their anger more, so I'm all for it. Absolutely. Um, so, and I love it. Thanks. Okay, so... <laughs> I'm angry a lot. <laughs> Our three things. Okay, so number one is support the woman-founded non-profit organization Ready School of Digital Integration, which is here in Berlin. They also have one in Munich. I think they also have now a Copenhagen chapter. This is a really good non-profit that helps refugees by teaching them coding and a lot of computer skills so that they can then get jobs. And in the West and in Germany specifically, we do have a lack of people who are skilled in these areas. So it's really, really good for us, for companies like Siemens and SAP. They're struggling to recruit. So what Ready does is it trains up people and then kind of places them in jobs. And this is what most refugees and migrants however we're terming this, really need. So there are many ways you can help. So you can donate money, you can donate equipment, so laptops and stuff. You can become a location partner if you have a location to host workshops and stuff like that. You can join as a volunteer, a mentor or a teaching partner. So if you're a UX designer, if you're a programmer, you can go and teach. You can also sponsor their events or become a HR partner or do what we're doing, which is just spread the word and become a ready ambassador. Thing number two, when donating or signing petitions, make sure to do your research. Like seriously, really thoroughly research who you're giving your money to, if it's going to the correct place, if it's set up by a legitimate organization. We will link to some great organizations that we support in the show notes. And thing number three relates to the fact that if rich countries do want fewer immigrants, the best shot is actually to help poor countries become rich so that fewer people feel the urge to leave. That includes helping them adapt to climate change and opening up their own markets to developing countries' exports. Obviously, you can't do that as an individual. You can help to campaign for those those causes, but maybe even just buying fair trade products to make sure that we're distributing wealth more equally when we buy bananas, for example, that might help. That's all from us from this week. 
Until next week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. If you like this podcast, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us. I am at Rena underscore Grobe underscore and Madvi is at Madvi Romani. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore MS underscore informed or shoot us an email misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You will find links to our Twitter and Instagrams in our show notes, as well as links to all the content we have discussed this week. Until next time, thank you for listening.